This is the fourth verse of Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read down through verse 7, and then I'm going to ask God to help us uh, to understand and consider these verses. This is Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pause for a moment and pray. God, we acknowledge your power and your might, your complete and total otherness today. You're not like us. You're not just good. You're the standard of all goodness. You're not just powerful. You're the source of all authority and power in the universe. You don't operate within time. It's your commands and your thoughts and your actions that define history. And I pray, God, this morning that as we celebrate and we rejoice in and think about your imminence, your nearness to us, that we would not lose the reverence and the awe that comes with considering who you are. You are beyond and more and majestic. And so, God, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful that Though in character and in ways and in insight and in knowledge and in wisdom, you are so far from us, we thank you that you give us an invitation to draw near. And more than that, we thank you for the story of Christmas where you have come near to us. And I pray, God, for your people now. I thank you for the gift of the church. What a a cool thing it is. What a joy it is to gather with the family of God. And I pray that we would find encouragement here this morning, that we would find life, that as we speak to one another, as we engage with one another, and even as we are present here, that we would find ourselves in unity and in rejoicing. God, reveal now. Reveal yourself. Reveal the plan to save us. Reveal your Son by your Spirit in all of His glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We titled these weeks that we're going to consider Galatians chapter 4, The Fullness of Time. The fullness of time. And that is going to be the backdrop that we consider about that first Christmas through the entirety of the weeks that we think about it. But I know right at the outset when we say something like the fullness of time that this is a hard concept. Time is a mind bender the more that you think about it. Much ink has been spilled. Many, many bright minds have engaged sometimes nearly their entire life to figure out the concept of time. What does it mean that time passes? Can we control it? Can we manipulate it? Great minds, Einstein, Marty McFly, have all considered and experienced the miracle of time 
and wondering how do we control it and how do we think about it. For many of us, time is an utter mystery, and yet we have all realized and thought about how significant it can be. I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life where you thought to yourself, wow, if it had only been a little bit sooner than X, Y, Z. Or, oh my goodness, if it had only been a little bit later, then what? I thought about this when I was experiencing and surprised by and thinking a number of years back when I had to have a major operation and I had to have a, a transplant and then they're telling me, like, just talk to your siblings and my sister steps forward and says, go for it. And it struck me immediately how unreal the time that I lived in was, thinking that for thousands and thousands of years of the history of earth, there is no option for me to go into the shop and get parts replaced. But the time that we live in, yes, we can do that. That's a big and massive way that I think about time. Other moments that I think about time, in fact, the preciseness of time have been less important, but nonetheless, they are amazing. A number of years back, we traveled and we saw a complete and total solar eclipse. I don't know if you were there. There's another one coming in a few years if you're interested. But it struck, two things struck me about our traveling and staying with friends and enjoying and then standing out in the middle of this hillside and looking up into the sky and watching and waiting as the sun slowly went to complete and utter darkness, as the insects and animals came out of hiding because they thought it was night, to watch a 360-degree sunset taking place around us because we were in the midst of a spot of darkness on the earth. I thought, what an amazing moment in time when this lines up perfectly, the precision of things lining up in time. And then you know what else is even more amazing than that? The fact that we could track these things ahead of time so that I knew to drive with my family to this particular place. Timing is amazing. We can mark the number of seconds and minutes and hours and days and weeks and months until these things are going to line up. And I'm standing there and I'm in the midst of this moment and it's awe-inspiring and at the same time I think to myself, there is so much that is out of our control and we don't understand. And at the same time I'm thinking to myself, humans are pretty amazing. We find ways to mark this. So I think about how many moments in life, if you just stop and think about it, that the concept of when it takes place, the time in which it happens, is a significant portion, a significant way to describe that event. The gratitude that I felt upon medical marvels, the awe that I felt in a solar eclipse and the aligning of the sun and our moon. I think about it in smaller ways. One of my favorite sports clips of all time is Randy Johnson pitching in a baseball game. I don't know if you've seen this before, but there is an actual moment in a baseball game where Randy Johnson, who throws one of the fastest pitches in the history of baseball, a massive man, he throws a pitch, and at the exact moment that his pitch is heading toward home plate, a bird flies through the frame of the camera, and he murders a bird with a baseball. 
Can you imagine all the factors going into this? At the exact moment, I was going to go like this, he's a lefty, but at the exact moment, why does everyone look so stupid throwing at the wrong hand? At the exact moment that he throws, the exact moment that he throws, I mean, think of the timing. Imagine the conversation at the bird funeral. Precision. And so it strikes me as curious when Galatians chapter 4 begins and Paul insists that one of the most wonderful things about Christmas and the coming of Jesus is that the fullness of time had come. There was something about this particular moment, this precise spot in history when God... And Galatians chapter 4, as it discusses the timing of the coming of the Son of God and the fullness of the time that had come that revealed for us the plan of God to redeem, we are invited into a theological discussion, a doctrinal dialogue between Paul and his readers, which is us, about the marvel and the mystery of when things come to pass. Now, in this particular time, we must insist that it is not as though God was waiting around. You see, when we drove to North Carolina for this eclipse, we had to sit and wait around a while. We were passive bystanders as the world moved around us. But in this particular sense, what marks all of history, what has separated two halves of human existence in the way that we talk about things, is God moving and Him determining time. Which is really an amazing thing to think about. The text here, when it describes the fullness of time, I think points to this is not only the right time in human history, but the completed time. Now, I wish, because I'm curious about these things, and I'm the kind of person who wants to watch the behind-the-scenes documentary, I wish sometimes that there would be a parenthesis here, and it would describe this is why it was the right time, and this is what the fullness of time exactly meant. We don't know. There are some things in God's mind and in His heart and in His plan that He doesn't reveal to us, except to say that when this took place, Paul insists it took place when the fullness of time had come. I do know this, that if you would have asked anyone in this, in this moment, it would have felt like they had waited a while. Israel had, in fact, been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since the very precise prophecies that Brian walked us through over the last, last week. A fantastic look at, at just what God's people were waiting for and what was Jesus fulfilling in all these promises. And Israel had been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, you could say that the fullness of time, this moment that marks history, that humanity had been waiting more than 1,300 years for this moment. Do you remember back to Genesis chapter 3? In Genesis chapter 3, just following the sin of Adam and Eve, God promises that the seed of the woman is going to smash the head of the serpent. 
And you could say that the plan was in place and the waiting had begun and the timer was going 1,300 plus years before this particular moment. From the time, and this is Paul's argument, from the time that sin is introduced into the world and we fall So when the text, Galatians chapter 4, says the fullness of time, we have at least 1,300 plus years of waiting and God orchestrating and promising and hinting and inviting and coming, all of this coming to fruition now in this particular moment. I mean, think about all that took place on the earth prior to this moment. I mean, one way to think about it is we started Genesis and began teaching through it, and it took us more than a year and a half to get through just that one book up to Jacob and Joseph. Just that part of the story of God's people. You know what else took place in the fullness of time between the fall in the garden and when Jesus comes into the world? You know what else took place? All of the history of the prophets and all the Psalms written, and Moses, and the law, and the Exodus, and all of the wanderings and failings of God's people, and all of the kings, good and bad, and all of the wars, and then sadly, all of the fall of the kingdoms of Israel, north and south, and then exile, and then hundreds of years of silence. And yet, In the midst of all of that, God was there, and He was watching, and He was orchestrating, and He was timing on a device or with a mechanism that He does not reveal to us, and we do not know, because we don't have the mind of God fully, but in God's timing, He acts. consider and to say, well, what was it about this particular time, and what exactly does it mean that it was completed? What were we waiting on? Anything? And I say all this to insist and to make sure that we realize one of the greatest gifts of Advent season. It's why we insist on beginning to celebrate Christmas at the start of December and then going all the way through. What we don't want to lose that the church has known down through the ages is that one of the greatest gifts of Christmas is to remember that we must wait on God. That all good things and anything significant, and in fact, all that matters ultimately in the world will be done in God's timing or it will be wrong. So we start talking about Christmas to rehearse and to remember from the depth of our soul that what happened at Christmas was God moving, not us cajoling Him into doing something good. The fullness of time came, and God moved. Anticipation and waiting and patience and watching and submitting and humbling ourselves before God is a part of Christmas. It's as much a part of Christmas as trees and singing and nativity scenes and gifts. Waiting on God's timing and His work and then declaring to him in worship that he hasn't gotten it wrong. 
You see, that's the thing about worry and about anxiousness and about our inability to wait on God is that subtly it is a repudiation of His character and His ways to tell God to hurry up or to believe that He has acted too soon. These are things that we're invited at Christmas time to repent of. You can't tell the Christmas story without insisting that God moved in the preciseness and the completion and the fullness of time. We know that Paul says that of hand, he's gotten this from somewhere. In fact, the somewhere is none other than Jesus himself. When Jesus began preaching at the start of his ministry, Mark chapter 1 records for us one of the places that we see this concept coming into view. Mark chapter 1, starting in verses in verse 14, 14 and 15. It tells us after, the John, after John was arrested, Mark moves things very quickly in his gospel. By the 14th verse, John the Baptist is arrested. So after John is arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, what is the first thing that Jesus proclaims? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Note what he says, the time is fulfilled. He doesn't give a ton of detail except to say, God is moving, therefore it's time. I am here, therefore it's time. And this is the language that Paul borrows in his preaching. By the Spirit of Jesus, taken from the words of Jesus, Paul gives to us the behind the scenes of Christmas and says, well, here's how it all started. The fullness of time had come. There's been a lot of discussion and argument about why this time. I've read what I believe to be intelligent and well-thought-out and logical arguments why this was one of the worst of times. It was a time of weakness in human history to show that God's strength was amazing. God had Jesus born into the world at a time when Israel was a powerless minority. And people have said, you know, there could have been other times, and so God must have met the fullness of the perfection of time because He was going to show His power in their weakness. And I suppose you could say, man, imagine if Jesus had come now. People live tweeting it, 4K cameras on site. Think of the marketing team that could have been in place. So some people have said, you know, like, well, it wasn't the perfect time in that sense. It's just it was the perfect time to show God's power. Now, not surprisingly, because people write on both sides of nearly every issue in the history of the world, I've also read very intelligent and logical explanations why this was the perfect time for Jesus to be born into the world. John Stott specifically writes, in some ways very convincingly, that maybe what happened here is that what was happening is for a wonderful time on the earth, that the Roman Empire had created a kind of peace that up to this point, a peace and unity of government of the known world that had not been seen previously. And more than that, that when the message of the gospel, including the ministry of Jesus, His death and His resurrection, when that needed to be proclaimed in all the world, the Romans had built roads for people to go on to proclaim the gospel in all the world. And so I read that and I think like, oh, well, that person thinks that clearly this is the most perfect and wonderful time to bring Jesus into the world. 
And then when I step back, I usually just say, neither of you know. Whenever we start to dabble in why God does something in a particular time, usually, unless He's told us specifically, we are completely and utterly guessing, and I don't stake much on it. Except to say that after all of the promises and all of the waiting and all of the prophets and all of the songs and all of the kings and all of the silence, God moves and it was right. Now, one of the goals, other than one of the goals of the next number of weeks is for us to think about Christmas in a way that highlights Jesus but puts Him within the Godhead. In fact, if I had to subtitle Galatians chapter 4, or if I had to choose a different title other than the fullness of time, and what I want to introduce today and think about over the next number of weeks, I would want to think about or title something like this, a triune Christmas. Now, I'm not going to say at the outset that all of the emphasis on Jesus at Christmas is somehow wrong. Anywhere and at any time and at any place you can emphasize Jesus, you go for it. That's a good thing. But did you know when we read through Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 7, that Paul cannot explain what happened in the fullness of time. He cannot explain what happened in the fullness of time without mentioning God the Father and the ministry of the Son and the ministry of the Spirit that comes and cries out within us. Christmas is about the triune God. And my hope over the next number of weeks is to consider that what happened when I say God moved in the fullness of time, I mean God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to consider and think about two things. One, a plan of redemption, and two, the eternal Son. A plan of redemption and the eternal Son. To think about the fullness of time as an introduction to what took place, and now to think about what God actually did, and we're going to think about it in these two ways, a plan of redemption, and second, the eternal Son. The first thing to note in this phrase, God sent forth His Son, is to recognize that there is an eternal agreement between the two that this is according to and in line with the interpersonal will of God. Sometime in eternity past, Father, Son, and Spirit, because God is one and their will is one, have agreed to enact a plan in the fullness of time to redeem God's people. It's an amazing thought to think about. And we insist upon this at Christmas because when we think about Christmas, we must avoid the temptation to believe, oh, Christmas is when Jesus began. The wording here, God sent forth His Son, the Greek word here is that He brought Him out of somewhere and sent Him somewhere else. It doesn't say that in the fullness of time had come, God thought up His Son or God let His Son exist. Christmas has been coming for a long, long time. More than that, when we want to be precise when we think about Christmas, to receive the humanity of Jesus, the incarnation of God, which is wonderful, but we are not receiving the beginning of God in Jesus. 
The way that people talk about this in very, very nerdy terms is to talk about the pactum salutis. It's a Latin way to say a plan of salvation, a covenant of salvation, a redemption that took place sometime in eternity past within God, that He had determined before time began that when the fullness of time had come, that He will save. And we know this is the case because Jesus is called in numerous places in the New Testament the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus not only existed eternally in the person of God, He eternally existed as the one who would humble Himself and come to redeem. This ministry that Jesus has has been forever. And all that God does in Christmas, all that He has enacted and all that He has brought about, this plan of redemption, we ought to be led to rejoice in God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit in equal measure. All that God is and all that He knows and all that He ordains in all of His power, in all of His might, in all of His goodness, has been leveraged to bring about the redemption of His own in Christ. The fullness of time had come. God sent forth His Son. It's as though for all eternity past, this play had been put in, in waiting, and in hiding, but it had been agreed upon, and it was there, and it was just ready to be sprung did you ever play football on a playground with your friends? I hope you did. If you never played football once on a playground with your friends, I guess I would accept soccer, if that's what you mean or hear by football. But you know that things got really, really serious in a playground game of football when whoever, when one of the people, usually a person who had more kind of leadership, the person who throws more and plays quarterback, says, hold on, we got to come up with a play. Because much of the best of backyard football is completely and utterly improvised in the moment, right? And I admit that I'm the kind of person who, if I'm playing in a football game, I hate wasting time, and I hate it when the guy on the other team says, hold on, we've got to come up with a play. But you know what I hate more than them coming up with a play? Then coming up with a play that takes forever. I'm not saying I got in an actual fight. But one time, I was playing a very, very competitive game of backyard football when I was 19, and the guy that I was very often in competition with is on the other team, and he says, hold on, we've got to have a play. And they take forever. And I'm standing there, and I'm starting to yell across, and he goes, ready yet? Like, what's going on? Like, are you calling someone? What is happening? And they come out, and they run this play, and it's the worst play in the history of mankind. It is the dumbest thing that I've ever seen. It fails miserably. And as this guy who apparently took forever to come up with this brainstorm is walking by me, I made a snarky comment, something to the effect of, you could have failed a lot quicker than that. <laughs> it was then that we both remembered we were Christians, 
and we shouldn't actively fight in a playground game. But the point is, is that when someone's taking a long time and they put a lot of effort into and they're putting a lot of thinking into and they think this is all my genius and then it gets enacted into the world, I expected something. And one of the miracles of Christmas, one of the things to behold, one of the things to wonder at is that this plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption that took place before the foundation of the world, here now in this time, gets put into motion. And what we find in Christmas is the exact opposite of every feeling I had watching this failing backyard football play. What God does is truly miraculous. What He does is truly hopeful. What He does succeeds in a way that we could not imagine. This is why Peter would write concerning the plan of redemption and what God puts into place at Christmas. He says that these are the kind of things that even angels have longed to look into. They wished they knew what was taking place. And here now, in the fullness of time, to an obscure family in a minority nation, in the midst of the Roman Empire, God says, now. Now is the time when what has been planned before the foundation of the world when the fullness of all of my love for my creation, when the fullness of all of my wrath towards sin, my hatred of the loss and the death that has come through sin, now is the time that I will move to redeem. That is amazing. That is remarkable. That is why every single year the world stops perhaps more unified than at any other time, save maybe New Year's Eve, the reason that the world stops in totality on Christmas is to mark and to remember and to stand in awe that then and there is when the eternal plan of God sprung into motion. All that the God the, God the Father is in His love and His commanding and His perfection and all that the God the Son is in His humility, in His service, in His nearness, and all the Spirit of God is in His breath and in His life and in His giving and in His coming, leveraged for Christmas, leveraged to save, leveraged to redeem. This is what it means that God moved, God sent. The second thing to insist upon this, if we remember that Christmas is the fullness of time, and if we realize that what's taking place in the fullness of time is an eternal plan within the whole Godhead to save and to redeem, if Christmas is a triune plan, then that means that one of the most remarkable things about Jesus, the thing that's going to set us up to really revel in and rejoice in the manger, is that Jesus is eternal. And I want to say this out loud as much as we can before we come to Christmas morning. Jesus did not come into existence at his virgin birth. There are lots of miraculous and wonderful things at the, at the birth of Christ, but he has been in existence and governing and ruling far before this particular moment. 
This is why John's gospel, for instance, is so memorable. The other narratives tell us the details surrounding the birth of Jesus. John's gospel goes straight to the theology of the birth of Jesus and remarks on, and I believe rejoices in, the wonder of the fact that Jesus was eternal. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I believe it's why it's so memorable. John 1 starts out like this. How do you tell the story of Jesus' birth? Well, he remembers that he was eternal. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We must avoid the mistake of explaining Jesus by starting with the manger. That is not as inspiring. It doesn't lead us to worship in the same way. We must explain Jesus as being pre-existent, eternal, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. Jesus is and will always be fully eternally God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him, not, there was not anything made that was made. Jesus, the pre-existent Son. This is why when we begin to think and focus on and insist on the eternality of Jesus... This could be a clue or a hint to why the fullness of time took so long to insist and to realize that Jesus had all of the dignity and all of the glory and all of the power and all of the might of God forever prior to this moment. One of the great things that can happen when we insist on the eternality of Jesus is that we begin to see Him everywhere in the Old Testament, not merely in, his, in the prophecies concerning him, but we see Jesus at the beginning of creation. And we see Jesus coming in what people have called theophanies or moments of, of his presence and his power and his might. We see him through the line of David and we see him in the songs that David sings. Jesus is a pre-existent eternal Son of God. This plan is not thought of in the moment. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit were not sitting around like the thinking man statue. You know that thinking man statue? We do not explain Christmas by saying there's a lot of problems in the world for a long, long time. And let me tell you, it took God forever to figure out what to do. There he was. You know why he was silent? He just sitting there. He just had to think forever. And then he said, I know. What about I make a son? This is not the way that we receive Christmas. I believe it does damage to the triune nature of God. It does damage to the glory that is due Jesus if we only tell his story as starting with the manger. And when, in the coming weeks, we focus on the humility of Jesus in the manger, 
the thing that will make that so wonderful is if and only if we have sat back in awe at his eternality first. How is it that God eternal, how is it that God the creating one, how is it that God the planning one, how is it that God the ever-present one comes in human flesh? The testimony of the church down through the ages, the things that we have insisted upon, in fact, the thing that changes Christmas from mere sentimentality and a good example of love in the world and moves it instead to a story of worship and of life change is when we have first received and considered Jesus as the all-glorious, all-powerful, worthy-of-worship one forever. That is the story that Paul is telling. He is reminding the Galatians of the wonder of this plan that God puts into place when Jesus comes. I believe that in the coming weeks, as we focus on the humility of Jesus, that again and again and again, we will be forced to remember and to think about how is it that God made this work. But I don't want to rush there, because remember, one of the gifts of Christmas is to be patient and to wait. I want to note one last thing about Galatians that I glossed over as I started the fourth verse. One of the things that, in addition to the fact that God has had this plan from forever, in addition to the fact that somehow the pre-existent forever Jesus comes into the manger, is what this plan comes in response to. You see, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, starts with this little conjunction, this word but, that if you've heard me teach before or if you've considered this maybe yourself before, you know that apart from the obvious most powerful words of the Bible like forgiveness and God and Jesus, all the Sunday school answers, that I think bar none the most powerful word in all of Scripture is but. Anytime you see the word but, you should just gird up your, your loins and be like, I'm excited, I'm ready. Another reason that this plan is so amazing and the reason that we celebrate it so often is because this plan comes in response to our greatest and deepest needs. Galatians chapter 4 begins in the middle of an argument where Paul is pleading with people who are in bondage to sin and to the law, people who do not feel free, don't have rest of soul. They don't know that there's life possible in the sun. They are experiencing all of the effects, the ill effects of the fall. They're dealing in death. That's the argument that Paul is making. He tells them specifically at the beginning of Galatians chapter 4, let me tell you what you are without Christmas. You're enslaved. You have no hope. You're in darkness. But, 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 when the fullness of time had come, God moved. And so when we tell the story of Christmas, we introduce it as God moving in the fullness of time and the plan of redemption from eternity past and the preexistent Son, but we also tell the story in a joyful way as the response 
to all of the problems and difficulty of sin and death in the world. And when you come to a church service like this, and when you read the Bible, and when you consider all that Jesus has done at Christmas, the sweetness of this plan being put into place, the sweetness will come from the depth of your realization of need for God to do something. It is only when you see yourself apart from the Son, as enslaved and in death and without hope and only approaching wrath, that Christmas will be sweet to you. So here's what God has done. In the midst of our sin and rejection of Him, in the midst of our enslavement, in the midst of our hopelessness, God moves in the fullness of time. A plan that He has enacted from before the foundation of the world, He springs it into action. The Son comes forth, born of a woman, so that you and I could be invited back home, back in, so that you and I could be forgiven. All of this takes place so that our position, our status, our hope could be reignited in Christ. I say that because in the moments to come, I'm going to invite you to stand. And I want to invite you to consider Jesus as the hope of your life. I'm going to invite you to partake in the Lord's Supper, and what we remember in this, what we remember is that this plan has come into into the world. This plan is coming to fruition so that our sins could be forgiven. And if that's your hope, and if that's what you're longing for, then you will read the beginning of Galatians chapter 4 with anticipation and with hope. Yes, but when the fullness of time 